Hello, greetings. Thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. And we're in the midst of exploring an important question. Who are we? When we ask that question, who are we? We're trying to understand what makes us us as opposed to them. Now, asking this question and formulating an answer may be an attempt to alienate or hate or condemn them as the other, but it doesn't have to be. It also can just be a way of trying to come to grips with who we are. How come we are who we are, believe what we believe, and do what we do? And in order to grapple with that question of who we are, we have to address our heritage. What have we been given? The past can be seen as an anchor in both senses of the term. It can provide the stability of weighing down so we don't move to and fro, but it also weighs down so that uh, any kind of change is made more difficult. Who we are does not have to be entirely defined by what we have been, but it certainly helps us understand where we are now. What is it that we've been given? What was done in the past that continues to shape us? And we're not going to be able to effectively understand who we are until we reckon with what we have been and why. And when we look at Christianity, we're looking at this uh, time of identity crisis uh, for Christians as we've entered the 21st century. Uh, we're all experiencing this level of identity crisis as our society enters what's been called a post-Christian society, uh, where people believe Christianity has been tried and found wanting, even though, in reality, uh, it's been barely tried according to the way that Jesus has established according to his purposes. And the Christian faith is looked at with great skepticism and derision in many places. And even beyond what challenges we're going through, through as individual Christians, there's also our heritage as members of Churches of Christ. Um, who are we really, and what do we really stand for? Uh, in the past 30 years, we've seen this extraordinary situation in which we've gained some currency in greater evangelicalism, so to speak, because they've become more ecumenical in posture and therefore we have been more accepted. Should we see ourselves in greater alignment with them, or should we continue to insist on our own distinctiveness? How important is our doctrinal stances versus our practical behaviors? Is soundness in a church primarily defined by what is taught or what is done? What should be our ideals? And what do we privilege and prioritize among these ideals when we get to the messy and compromised world of the real? And so, as we struggle in the midst of this identity crisis, we do well to explore how we've arrived where we are and the heritage we've been bequeathed. And really, they were asking, what of the restoration plea in the 21st century? Is there still value to the call of restoring the New Testament faith? And if there is, how do we best restore New Testament faith in the 21st century? And today we're going to continue our conversation in this thread by looking at the call that, has, that got, went out in the restoration movement. Uh, clearly and loudly for generations, no creed but Christ. In order to be able to talk about that declaration of no creed but Christ, we have to ask what creeds are and to see how they developed and to see what the difficulties are that come along with creeds and how we may contend for the faith without devolving into creedalism. Now, modern Americans today can be forgiven for asking what creeds are and why they would matter. A uh, few things better exemplify the cultural victory of liberalism in terms of personal conscience and liberty than the diminishment of the creeds in modern Christian faith and practice. 
200 years ago, Christians who conscientiously objected to a certain creed might well find himself out of association, maybe even employment. This was the fate that many of the earliest of the Restoration Movement pioneers, uh, Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell and others, found themselves under some kind of discipline uh, by the Presbyterians because they would no longer subscribe to certain parts of the Westminster Confession. Uh, 200 years before that, um, oh, such a person who would not uh, subscribe to the creeds would be burned at the stake, and many, uh, in fact, were burned at the stake in Europe and in England because they would not go along with uh, the creeds and with the things established within them. Now, as with all things liturgical, creeds are making a bit of a comeback here in some aspects of Christendom, uh, but to a lot of people, creed is still perhaps a late 90s uh alternative band uh, or or a name uh, from somebody that they've seen in a television show or somewhere else. But we do well to look at what creeds are, where they came from, and what led to them. So what's a creed? A creed comes from the Latin word credo. Credo is a verb meaning I believe. And so creeds are statements of belief. And to those who adhere to creeds and support them, they represent statements of faith designed to safeguard Christian orthodoxy from heresy. So they're trying to establish uh, right teaching and right doctrine from false teaching and false doctrine. Uh, they are known for their I believe statements, and hence why they're called creeds. They would begin credo in Latin, and therefore we call them creeds. Now when it comes to the Bible, in the Old Testament, perhaps the Old Testament, the closest it gets to a creed is in Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4, in which uh, Moses says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is the Shema from the Hebrew to hear. And this is something that is today recited over and over again in, in standard Jewish prayers. And Israel was to continue to hear that Yahweh their God was one and was their God and that they were to love God all their heart, soul, and might. And it's become kind of creedal in its use, but we can see here in the original part, it's part of this whole hear thing. In fact, uh, Moses will continue on with many other things uh, after that. So it's not exactly designed to be uh, a creed uh, any more or less than any other affirmation or exhortation found in the Torah. In the New Testament, there is uh, one place where we see a very strong indication of creedal language. In Matthew chapter 16 and in verse 16, Peter gives a confession. And that confession is that I believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He didn't say, I believe. You are the Christ, the living God, was the confession that was made. In Acts 8 and verse 37, uh, the eunuch, it seems to be a later interpolation. Uh, that verse is not in some of the earliest manuscripts. But it says, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, but it's clearly something along the lines of Peter's confession. And it would be the type of confession which would be taken when a person presented themselves to be baptized. So we have every reason to believe that the eunuch said something of that sort, even if it's not those exact words. In 1 Timothy 6 and verse 13, Paul talks about how Jesus made the good confession before Pontius Pilate that he was the king, that he was the Christ. And Timothy himself in the previous verse, in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12, had made the same good confession before witnesses. Um, and Paul reminds him of this, that he might encourage him to fight the good fight of faith, to hold fast to the eternal life that he has found in Jesus. The Hebrews author expects Christians to hold fast to their confession in their lives in Hebrews 3, 1, 4, 14, and 10 in verse 23. 
And so that is why we suggest that there's no creed but Christ, that there is this declaration of uh, uh, here, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is a confession that is to be made. Now, uh, a lot of people who um, believe strongly in creeds uh, will find other indications of creedal language in the uh, New Testament. It should not surprise us that people who believe in creeds are going to find creedal language in the New Testament. Uh, one such statement is in Philippians chapter 2, 5-11 through 11, uh, regarding the nature of Jesus that he uh, and what Paul says there and it seems to some people that he's quoting something uh, that perhaps that they are already aware of. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. It's very concise. It is very... Uh, there's a lot there, a lot to unpack there. It could well have been some statement that Paul had rehearsed many times before. It might have been something in a song or something, uh, but there's no demand for something like that to be a creed. Uh, now, First Timothy chapter 3 has a little bit better of a case, because in verse 16, uh, Paul says, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Um, so there's confession that is being given here. But even here, we're not exactly sure what's going on here. We don't know if Paul is formulating this for the first time. We don't know if this is a part of perhaps an early Christian hymn that was well known. It does seem to be poetic to some degree. Uh, it, it seems to not sit well with, as you're going to see, the historic creeds. Because they do say things that are true about Jesus, but uh, the teaching or, or exhortative function to try to make clear uh, is not certainly there. Um, Again, if you want to find creeds, you'll think this is a creed. But there's plenty of reasons to suggest that this may not be a creed. And just by what is said here, it's going to be very hard to, to make that leap. Especially the idea that Paul would insist on this precise formulation uh, to the detriment of any other. And that's what we're going to get into is a really big issue with the creeds. And Paul doesn't call them such. They also could involve unofficial phraseology, uh, providentially hindered, guide, guard, and direct us, separate and apart are things that many participating Church of Christ will know, even though there's separate churches around the country, uh, because the certain phrases kind of get picked up and used and moved around. And so common language might well be used as well. We just simply don't know. But the New Testament does expect the affirmation and practice of the faith. And the substance of the faith has its limits in what is made known to all the Christians through the apostles and their associates in Jude 1 verse 3. So there's the faith, but at no point in the New Testament is there a codified rehearsed summation or declaration of what that faith is beyond the statement that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that is why we say no creed but Christ. That, that Christ is important there. That yes, we have to uh, agree that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the declaration of faith is valued not in terms of establishing orthodoxy as much as a commitment of faith to be lived out, because this confession demands repentance and reformation in conduct, which is what Paul and Hebrews author attest. That's why he 
mentions it. Remember what you've confessed. Live that life of faith. Uh, make good on your confession. Um, creeds don't. They don't demand anything of anyone. So the only creed for Christians is the truth that Jesus is the Christ. And everything else is expected to flow from him. And that truth, because in him is the treasures of all knowledge and truth in Colossians 2, 1 through 9. So, after the death of the apostles, early Christians found themselves constantly in battle with various false doctrines and teachers, which is what Paul said would happen in 1 Timothy 4, 1, that in latter day times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And early Christian apologists would insist on what's called the rule of faith which in its earliest formation involved what's called the deposit of faith. And the deposit of faith, a deposit is what you kind of uh, hand over. Um, deposit, you, you put it in the bank. You've handed it over as, an, as a trust. And so what's the, the thing handed over in trust? Well, it's the substance of what is true in Christ, validated by the testimony of the apostles and their associates, uh, that the faith was to be communicated. Second Timothy 2, 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of faithful witnesses, uh, entrust to others that they may teach others. So you have this expectation that this message of what the faith is gets handed down uh, from teacher to student to teacher to student and so on and so forth. Now by the 4th century, many had codified what they called the rule of faith into what would be known as the Apostles' Creed. It's called the Apostles' Creed because it's claimed that each of the apostles contributed a line or that it originated in statements of the apostles. But really it represents a compilation of various phrases written down by early Christians over the past 300 years. And the Apostles' Creed is as follows. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day he rose again. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Hell is understood here and revised among some groups. It simply refer to the realm of the dead. Catholic originally involved universal, not the denomination of Roman Catholicism, and many have revised it to the Holy Christian Church. Now, is there anything to disagree with substantively? Well, we might have some issues with he descended into hell. Uh, yes, Jesus did experience time in the afterlife. Yes. Uh, so that's that's what it's getting at. Uh, how much more to be expanded upon that, the harrowing of hell or other doctrines, uh, is another discussion for another day. Uh, so that would maybe be the, kind of some concern about exactly how that gets written. That's why it sometimes just gets revised to say realm of the dead. Uh, now the Apostles' Creed was intended to enshrine in Christian orthodoxy against the Gnostics, the Ebionites, who were the Jewish Christians, and any other sectarian group of the day. And this movement of confession from belief in Jesus as the Christ to uh, and, and insisting that, okay, you believe that, you say you believe that, go live it, is now made to be a rehearsing of statements of belief. Uh, this defines the first few centuries of Christianity. Uh, this movement from, hey, you say this, this, this could get you in trouble with people, um, that Jesus is the Christ and the living God, but we're supposed to live by that. Now, oh, we're going to make these long pronouncements about what we believe is true about God. It really shows the influence of Greek philosophy and represents a philosophizing of the faith. 
And it does also reflect the intensity of the argument with all these heretical groups. And, and these kind of things would be said because a lot of these heretics could not say all these things in good conscience. And that's why they became tools to kind of see, okay, are you on the same page as us or not? And that's what they were designed to do. And also then later would maintain certain educative functions because you say them over and over again, you recognize these are the, some of these things are the core of Christianity. But we must insist, as we're going to continue to see as we explore the history of some of these creeds, that the teaching function is very much secondary and very much later. That the primary function of these creeds was to delineate what is orthodox, i.e. what is what they believe to be true, versus... Um, what they believe to be of the realm of heresy, and to delineate who is in from who is out, that they're inherently sectarian documents. And uh, we see this very much with the development of and insistence on the Nicano-Constantinopolitan Creed. You have never heard of the Nicano-Constantinopolitan Creed? No, you've probably heard of the Nicene Creed, though. And uh, it's the same thing. The same, Nicene Creed originally comes out of the Council of Nicaea in 325. That's worth talking about the Council of Nicaea because the Council of Nicaea is apparently where all the conspiracies took place. If you ask anybody, it's where uh, the Bible is fixed, it's where uh, they decided to meet on Sundays, it's when they decided to start the Illuminati. Uh, you just ask people and you'll have all kinds of crazy things. And it all kind of centers on Nicaea. When Nicaea, in its historical reality, was called by the Emperor Constantine to deal with Arianism and dealing with the prospect of division in this new uh, church Christianity that, that the Emperor had now uh, adhered himself to. What is Arianism? Well, Arianism comes from Arius, who was an Egyptian monk of the 3rd century, who claimed that Jesus was the greatest of created beings, but still of the creation. That's a really highly oversimplified understanding of Arianism. For our purposes, we could spend a whole sermon talking about Arianism, but that's for our purposes. Jesus is a created being, therefore he is not on the exact same level as God. A lot of people found Arianism persuasive, and uh, division schism was a very strong possibility. Uh, in the Council of Nicaea, we have a very famous scene where uh, Nicholas uh, Lyra famously punched Arius. Uh, the Saint Nicholas of Lyra would eventually become the guy that we would know as... St. Nick, as in Santa Claus, uh, who uh, in his original form punched the heretic Arius. Arius was declared heretical at the Nicene, the Council of Nicaea, and the Nicene Creed was written so that Arians could not say it without compromising their Arianism. That's why it has in it begotten, not made. Uh, and that's how it would delineate the Orthodox from the Arian, to separate out the Arians from all the Orthodox who understood you know, the faith according to the Nicene Creed. It's kind of ironic, since how many people think that the Council of Nicaea is where uh, the game was fixed, because for over 50 years, Arianism became ascendant afterward, because a lot of the uh, bishoprics around the Roman Empire were starting to be filled by Arians. And uh, a lot of the emperors would either align with the Arians, or try to find some kind of middle ground between the Arians and the Orthodox. And uh, you can see the... the life of Athanasius of Alexander to see the ups and downs, mostly downs until the final up, uh, of those who try to insist on the wrongness of Arianism and the validity of what had been decided at Nicaea. 
and through Athanasius of Alexandria, through the work of some of the bishops of Rome, uh, the Orthodox, quote-unquote, again gained the upper hand against the Arians. And so there was a second ecumenical council of Constantinople called in 381 that re-ratified the Nicene Creed, modified it. They removed some of the anathemas, cursing certain people, and adding some aspects of the Holy Spirit, since by this time the uh, Pneumatomachians, excuse me, those who fought against the Spirit, uh, had come up uh, denying the, the full divinity of the Holy Spirit. And so what we call the Nicene Creed is really the Nicano-Constantinopolitan Creed, because it works, it's, it's all that. And this is how the Nicene Creed, or Nicano-Constantinopolitan Creed, reads. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all, of all there is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only, Son of the, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us, men, in our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he was born the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to, into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. In the original, later in the West, the word filioque in Latin, and the Son is added. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. You mentioned that the introduction of the word filioque uh, later on. That would become the defining dogmatic dis division between the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches in 1054 and the theological basis upon which they both anathematized each other. Uh, the, the Catholics for adding it to it and the Orthodox for denying uh, the principle that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And rarely has there been more fighting and animosity over a single word, as it, there is with the Filioque. A similar creed, which is called the Athanasian Creed, allegedly written by Athanasius, but probably originating in Spain in the 6th or 7th centuries, was formulated and considered authoritative, and it went to even greater specificity in its opposition to Arianism. I encourage you to find it online. I'm not necessarily going to uh, bore you to tears by reading it also, but it goes along with the Nicano Constantinopolitan Creed. Now again, is there much to argue with it substantively? Not much, really, no. Nor with the Athanasian Creed. But the issue, again, is the story of its formulation and its purpose. It's nakedly sectarian in character. It's designed to ferret out Arianism to make a distinction between the Orthodox and the Arians. And even that phraseology that we use, what does Orthodox mean but right belief? The victors receive the spoils. And so we, we call it the Orthodox position because it's the position that uh, ended up being ascendant. It ended up you know, being the, uh, the consensus view. Afterwards, Arianism would be spread among the pagan German nations because some of the Arian monks went out and uh, evangelized there. But eventually it would be almost entirely eliminated by the end of the first millennium. Although to this day, in their ignorance, many Bible students stumble into it or related heresies like modalism, Sabellianism, and, and, and a few others. Now, many people who are believers in creeds, the creedalists, will claim the Holy Spirit was involved in the guidance of these movements. That, hey, orthodoxy was maintained, the schism was averted, um, and perhaps they have a case with the Nicene Creed and how it all turned out, but it, they certainly don't have that case in the next instance, which involves the confession of Chalcedon or the Chalcedonian definition. Now, right after uh, 
the whole issue with uh, Arius and Arianism got sorted out, and the Nicano-Constantinopolitan Creed was established, and uh, and Arianism was fully denounced in the churches. Another massive disputation entered Christendom, primarily in the East, which involved politics and factionalism as much as anything actually substantive about the nature of Jesus. On the one side, you have the Antiochenes of Antioch of Syria, represented by Nestorius and what would eventually be deemed Nestorianism, which we officially call radical duophysitism. The idea that Jesus is fully, almost separately, two natures, human and divine. Uh, the, the point of contention was Nestorius wasn't entirely comfortable calling Mary the Theotokos, the God-bearer. Uh, he preferred simply Christotokos, the Christ-bearer. On the other hand, the Alexandrians, represented by Cyril of Alexandria, and in its most extreme form, Eutychus, uh, who espoused Eutychianism, which is officially monophysitism, which is Jesus' humanity was basically swallowed up by his divinity and of that one nature. Nestorius and the Antiochenes almost certainly did not believe in Nestorianism. Their opponents took their views to an extreme they themselves did not. Now, Cyril of Alexandria is a very powerful uh, bishop, and he leveraged his power and influence to demonize Nestorius and Nestorianism. The Council of Ephesus in 431 condemned Nestorius and affirmed Cyril. But a second Council of Ephesus was called in 449, which affirmed monophysitism. This was not attended by delegates from uh, Rome and would be known as a robber council. And so in order to try to sort this mess out, the, a council was called for ch in Chalcedon, uh, which is near Nicaea and uh, near um, uh, Byz uh, Byzantium, I believe, Constantinople, uh, in 451. And it attempted to navigate the waters between Nestorianism and Monophysitism. It didn't come out with what we call a creed exactly, but it did come out with what is called the definition or confession of Chalcedon. And this is it. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach people to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved, and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. We've come a long way from, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, haven't we? Theologically, the Chalcedonian definition is not terribly problematic. But it's a curious thing, but because the Alexandrians, it seemed like a complete capitulation to Nestorianism. And after all, uh, that, you know, there's, there's the two distinctions and, and nothing's taken away by them. Uh, and the funny thing is they all claim to be honoring Cyril of Alexandria, the Monophysites, and also uh, the Orthodox. Uh, it'd be hard to believe that Cyril would have approved of that definition. He died before this council was called. And Chalcedon would not end as favorably as Nicaea ended. This, the controversy absolutely led to schism. The quote-unquote Nestorian Church of the East would go one way, and they would end up uh, pressing further east and ultimately reaching parts of China with the gospel by the 8th century. Uh, 
and the Monophysite Syrian Orthodox and Eastern Coptic churches going the other way, with the Eastern Orthodox left in the middle. And all of that division happened because of Chalcedon. In fact, the uh, Egyptian Copts felt like the persecution coming from the emperor uh, was so bad that when the Muslims invaded in the 630s, they welcomed them because uh, life was more tolerable under the Muslims than it had been under the uh, Eastern Orthodox emperor. This is a savage truth that to this day, anyone who can tell you exactly what they were arguing about with this Christological controversy uh, is... Uh, is completely delusional or a fool. No one knows what they're really arguing about and how anybody could determine with such great specificity by what has been known in Scripture about these things. Uh, most of the time, it just gets explained in terms of the fact that you have this competition between the Alexandrians and the Alexandrian way of looking at things and the Antiochians and, and the way that they look at things. And that competition conflict defines this disagreement uh, where nobody's giving each other benefit of the doubt and they're all arguing and taking each other to extremes that none of them really believe in except for perhaps the most extreme versions. And the disagreement leads people to the extremes. And behold, we have division. And that's the circumstance in which we find ourselves. And that's what, how Chalcedon is the demonstration of that extreme of creedalism. That it's not just about the truth. No, it's also power and politics and, and all these games to use declarations in great specificity to delineate on issues that might not ultimately need delineating or may not be able to be comfortably delineated to the specific degree that people would like. And it led to innumerable divisions that have only recently healed. And that's the final irony of it all, is that in the past... 25 years, I think, there have been movements uh, trying to restore some unity uh, among what descendants are left of the Syrian Orthodox and the Copts and the Eastern Orthodox and to lay aside the whole issue to begin with, which shows just how dumb it was to begin with. Now, there are other creeds out there, but the Apostles' Creed, the Nicano-Constantinopolitan Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and the Chalcedonian Definition are really what are the ecumenical creeds. Uh, these are supposedly the basis of unity for the historic Christian orthodoxy. Uh, and after this, a lot of others would come up with other creedal statements. Uh, and, and most of these end up going down denominational lines. So the Lutherans hold firm to the Augsburg Confession of 1520 and 1530. Another major one is the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was developed in 1646 as part of the Westminster Standards of the Church of England, really Calvinistic and most prevalent among the Reformed Presbyterians and Congregationalists. And as we said, many early Reformation movement preachers were put on ecclesiastical trial and condemned because they did not hold to certain aspects of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Many denominational organizations have their own creeds. Baptists have various confessions of faith. The Anglicans have 39 articles and Lambeth articles, and so on and so forth. And, and creedalism hasn't gone away. Uh, we've seen this in recent statements now. The big fad is statements. So the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy in 1978. And only in 2017 there was a Nashville Statement regarding sexuality. And so, yeah, creedalism is in the warp and woof of Christendom and in the, the denominational world that it has established. So having kind of gone through this historical uh, survey, and we've gone through it in great detail because so few people really understand what creeds are and how they came about. And so uh, there, this is basically a, a, a lesson in of itself. But now we need to say, okay, what are we going to say about this stuff? Uh, what about creeds? What about creedalism? Well, I hope that we can understand how creeds came about and the impetus toward creedalism. 
as Christians were to contend for the faith delivered by the apostles in Jude 1.3. And hey, over time, there are a lot of disagreements and arguments that have come about regarding various aspects of the faith, and many of them are very significant issues. Uh, and statements can help to clarify theology to work through its implications. And hey, like we said, the substance of these historical quote-unquote ecumenical creeds is generally theologically unproblematic. And really, uh, what's more important even than those creeds are the arguments which led to these creeds uh, that are really important in their clarifications. Uh, really important to read the arguments that are being used by Athanasius against Arianism. Uh, very powerful stuff to really show what the problem really is with Arianism. Um, absolutely. And through statements, it's very easy to communicate and teach essences of the faith and aspects of the faith. And yes, you have statements like this that can sometimes expose wolves in the middle of the sheep, those who have at least enough integrity that they won't actually sign on to saying something they don't really believe uh, to be true. Although, if they're going to be duplicitous, they might say it anyway and redefine their own words or just uh, keep up an appearance. So creedalism is completely understandable, but the basic confession that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of the living God, was sufficient in early Christianity. Yes, John would insist on some greater specificity, uh, confessing that Jesus Christ came in the flesh in 2 John 1, 6-10, but he never insisted on a new formula. He didn't say, now you must confess, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, coming in the flesh. Christians are expected to contend for the faith, to resist and rebuke false teachers, to mark those who teach contrary to the gospel. Absolutely, Romans 16, 17-18, 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, Jude 1, and verse 3. But very importantly, the apostles did not feel compelled to insist on one particular creed or formulation. Beyond the basic confession of Christ, none is made explicit. So the issue is not with the substance as much as the drive to make these statements and impose them. And we say it again, the issue is less with the substance of what is being said and more about the drive to formulate statements and insist upon them. Because whereas creedalism is an attempt to solve some problems, in the process it creates new ones. Again, it's inherently sectarian. The point of creeds is to define certain beliefs as these are in beliefs, therefore these others are out beliefs. At this times, this will prove necessary. Maybe not making the statement, but we do need to define, okay, Arianism is out. Faithful belief in God and Jesus and his equality with God is in. At times, it proves unnecessary, fractious, and divisive. You know, all the things going on with Ephesus and Chalcedon. Here's the thing about creeds, though. They, don't, they brook no dissent. Historically, those who did dissent were treated very harshly by those who affirmed them. And any and all creeds are kind of caught in a catch-22. If they're truly biblical in substance, we can simply point to the scriptures which teach or justify them, and that should be sufficient. If they prove necessary to clarify things, then are they not additions to what God has made known in Scripture? They are either additions if they're necessary. If they're not necessary, then they're not necessary, are they? It may be a chicken or egg issue, but creedalism and a reduction of Christianity to a set of principles go hand in hand. Now, what do you mean by chicken or egg issue? Well, maybe it was a movement toward a more Greek philosophical view of the faith that led to creedalism. Or maybe the move toward creeds made it easier to reduce the faith to a set of propositions like in Greek philosophy. Regardless, whereas we see this insistence, make good on your confession. That the confession of Jesus as a Christ was meant to lead to reform life in the shape of Jesus, creeds don't ask for behavior. Because they are defining what one is convinced is true versus what one convinced is not true. 
And to this day, creeds put emphasis on dogmatic principles rather than lived faith. And, as we mentioned, evangelicals and others who care deeply about matters of the faith among sectarian ecumenicalists, adherence to the ecumenical creed still defines Christianity from what is called the cults. It still sorts out who they think is in, like Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, mainline Protestants, evangelicals, from who is out, the Latter-day Saints, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Joseph Witnesses, and the Christian Scientists. So, again, it's assisting that certain ideas about God are of more importance than anything else. And again, we're not trying to suggest that what we believe about God has no importance. But who told us or gave us a suggestion that what we believe about Jesus is more important than how we live our life in Jesus? They are equally important. And creeds have given people an out to justify maintaining divisiveness in the pretense of unity. And again... Is it an issue when it comes to the theology of the doctrine involved in the creeds? No. But it's the dogmatism about insisting on agreement about post-apostolic phrasing. And he can tell you everything, that many creedalists have a very hard time understanding how a Christian would have no difficulty with the substance of the creeds, but have issues with the idea of creeds. Like, wait a second, if, if you don't have any problem with what they say, then what's wrong with holding on to them? It's not about disputing the doctrine. It's a matter of disputing the need to get everybody to sign on to a particular phrasing of an issue based in disagreements and factions of a certain time and age that may not be responsive to another time and age. Creeds are very ossified documents that have led to great contentiousness. Again, filioque. It led to all kinds of disagreements and disagreements to this day, and it was the substantive theological difference that led to the division between the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church. Whatever is substantially true in creeds, when respecting the biblical context, can be continually phrased to make sense in whatever time and culture we find ourselves. Why do we need to impose a particular formulation of an idea as a litmus test? This is not of Scripture. This is going beyond Scripture. Because here's a thing that is absolutely a thing. Disagreeing in agreement. And that seems like, what a, wait, wait, disagreeing in agreement? How can you disagree in agreement? Well, if you think that you haven't had a lot of conversations, especially online with fellow Christians about something, where you will see an argument go on. It seems like a lot of heat is being generated in this argument. And when it comes down to it, there were two people who were very sincere who really didn't disagree substantively. They just felt uncomfortable with the approach or the phrasing the other person was using and felt more comfortable with another kind of phrasing. That happens a lot. Disagreement about how we phrase an issue is not necessarily disagreeing about the issue itself. But when it comes to creeds, there's no give or take. It's either you accept the language as formulated, or you don't. And so in a lot of ways, creeds have codified the eye of Cephas, eye of Apollos, eye of Christ sectarianism in modern Christendom. They are instruments to draw lines in the sand. They divide. They don't really provide unity. So what about these things? Well, Hope that we can understand why so many in the Restoration Movement called out to affirm no creed but Christ. They saw the divisive nature of these documents, even when they agreed in substance, and they wanted Christians to find their unity in their shared confession that Jesus is the Christ. But hey, that path of creedalism is always there, and it's always tempting. Creeds are easy. Everything is sharply defined. You're in or you're out. In the middle of doctrinal disputes, it's easy to reach for a formula which easily communicates and easily can be affirmed or rejected. 
And it's very easy then to determine association, whether or not a person is going to affirm a particular statement or not. Hey, do you agree with me that this is the way it is or not? To reject somebody, even if the problem is not in what is substantially believed, but is in how one is willing to phrase their viewpoint. At any point, we can distill various truths about God's verses in Christ made known in Scripture in a series of statements of affirmation. We can then take those statements, like, I believe that Jesus was born on the, you know, from the Virgin Mary. I believe that he lived. I believe that he died on the cross. I believe he was raised on the first, third day, first day of the week, after three days. I believe that he ascended to the Father. I believe we now must believe, confess, repent, and be baptized to become part of his kingdom. We can turn those things into statements. We can then take those statements and use them to teach. We can also take those statements and begin imposing them on others as tests of fellowship. And in fact, we don't even have to go that far. We can take a lot of these slogans of the Restoration Movement. Do you believe in no creed but Christ? We can make that a creed. We can make uh, Christians, only, but not the only Christians, Bible names for Bible doctrines, speak what the Bible speaks, be silent, the Bible is silent, uh, and, and so on and so forth. We can make uh, functionally creedal statements out of these. We can also take arguments made in the past in a very specific context and impose their formulation, their phraseology, even when perhaps they no longer make sense or they did not take uh, the holistic view of the whole situation. The sufficient, all sufficiency of the church, for instance. The kingdom is the church. Uh, in certain arguments, that, that formulation made sense, but uh, on reflection, when, it, when we're looking at it in terms of other issues, it may not make the most sense. And, and we're not... When we force ourselves to be tied to a certain formulation, we have become creedalists. There may be value in these statements, and we can affirm them in various ways, but they're not from Scripture. They can be taken to extremes, and what right do we have to insist that people accept that particular phrasing of some slogan or arrangement because people before us did so? Creedalism is born not out of faith, but out of insecurity, out of fear, a desire to make more firm and dogmatic what is not made explicit in Scripture. And that's why we do well to insist on no creed but Christ, to be on guard against the dangers of creedalism. On the other hand, we have to recognize the strengths behind some aspects of creedalism, and find ways of honoring those needs and strengths without insisting on creeds. Again, creeds can be an effective way of instruction. And we do well to find ways to communicate the gospel and the kingdom simply in ways that we can provide an exhortation to others and they can provide that in others in turn, according to 2 Timothy uh, 2 and verse 2. We shouldn't make it overly complicated for the sake of making it overly complicated. The creeds have provided some level of understanding about the nature of God and Christ. Uh, it's very easy for us to completely neglect the issues of modalism, of Arianism, of... Uh, of the nature of Jesus, because that's all been settled with all these things in the past. But uh, we neglect those things to our peril, because on all these issues, the heresies involved are a lot easier than orthodoxy. Uh, Well-meaning Christians and sincere Christians have many times lapsed into these different heresies uh, because... It just seemed to make more sense to them. It's a way of flattening out the very complicated, mystery, na mysterious nature of God. I myself have spent many, many uh, opportunities uh, trying to dissuade faithful Christians from modalism. Uh, at first, Sabellianism made a little bit more sense to me about the nature of, of Jesus just being 
okay, he's he's God in the flesh, right? So he's the spiritual nature of God in a body. Okay, there you go. That, that seems to make sense. Guys, wait a second. If that's the case, then the spiritual side of man never got redeemed. So that's why he has to be both. When he's being fully God and fully man, it means that he is man, man in terms of soul, spirit, and body, not just body. And so there you go. That's one of those things where upon further reflection, when you start realizing some of these things, uh, why did Arianism or Docetism get popular in the 19th century? People went to extremes because, you know, some of the people were explicitly rejecting creeds, actually, and rebelling against them. Uh, but those are going to extremes. And again, it that that's not healthy. And... So we do need to do some study in the nature of God, even though the creeds, you know, have covered this ground. Uh, we need to be aware of the argumentation behind it to be able to really uh, understand these things. And we can teach and preach the truth about these things using the argumentation behind the creeds without using the creeds of becoming creedalists in these ways. And that's how we can resist creedalism and insist on no creed but Christ. We confess that our belief is that Jesus the Christ is the living God, that we will teach and preach the gospel proclaimed by the apostles and their such as the New Testament. Not that we're disagreeing the substance of the creeds, but that we're going to find ways that do not insist upon certain dogmatic formulations and are not used to divide people as a way to exhort people to come to faith in Christ. And so this is no creed but Christ in the history of creeds and creedalism. That theologically, we have a little quarrel with historic creeds, but there's warranted skepticism about why people want to dogmatically impose certain formulaic standards beyond what God has made known in Christ to the apostles. That creeds, by their very nature, are sectarian documents. They're trying to put make a litmus test. We can teach and preach and insist upon the truth of God in Christ as made known through the testimony of the apostles and their associates in the New Testament without writing up specific formulations to which we insist all must subscribe if they're going to be seen as faithful Christians. Creedalism is clean-cut, it's simple, it's easy, and it's tempting. No creed but Christ can get very complicated and messy, but we must always be on guard against creedalism. And so therefore, may we confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Hold fast to that confession. Make good on it in obedient faith and that we may obtain the resurrection of life. And so glad that you've joined us. If you've been benefited by us, we encourage you to please share it on social media. Uh, if you'd like to talk more about it, if you have other questions, if you'd like to discuss other issues, if you have prayer requests, if you'd just like to learn more about us or come and join us, please find us online at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. We're also on many forms of social media. And if I can be of any service, please reach out to me at my website, deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. I again thank you. Have a great day.